There's a drive in Kelly for like serious self-worth. Get curious about sex. I'm not only going to woo my partner, but I'm going to woo myself. And then meditate. I'm like, oh my God, I'm a monk. You're not always in control. And it was like pride, not have periods, not have emotions. I'm going to need to feel everything. I found in those shattered pieces my truth. We're just piling more shame and judgment on top of the original problem. You're sick. Your body's revolting against you. Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegalovirus. These are things that can be simmering on you that you don't know. And they're the trigger for your problem. Making the connection between your mind and your body, your emotional needs. That is how we heal. You're listening to a Soul Fire Productions podcast. Today on the show, we have the incredible Dr. Ariel Setnar. She is a clinical psychologist and certified yoga instructor focusing on the mind-body connection, meditation, mindfulness, and how we can get really rooted and grounded in who we are and find ways to explore from that space. I was so blown away in talking to her because this is her first ever podcast interview. I don't know how that's possible. She was so nervous going into it and kept telling me, I'm terrible at this. I'm going to stutter. I'm going to misspeak. Can we pause? Can we edit? She didn't mess up one time. And she said some of the most profound things I have ever heard on a show. And I just cannot wait for you guys to hear this. She has a really interesting background and we get a lot into her past and her childhood and what it was like for her growing up. And I love that because it's really created the platform for what she does today, being inspired by her sister coming out uh, when she was really young, actually being married to a man who came out as gay throughout their divorce process, um, and working with people in the LGBTQIA plus community and how that compassion and empathy really served her in her own life experiences and the way she shows up as a therapist now. So we get into her upbringing, the culture of being raised by biracial parents. Her father is not her biological father. The limiting beliefs and stories that she created around that situation, uh, where she was questioning her future and feeling hopeless. And this desire and asking for what you want peace and how we can really get clear on our own truth, how we can not live so much in the black and white, how we can not just dive into this need to accomplish things, but really just holding, holding the space for what is and allowing what is meant to be to come in. This is a beautiful conversation. I can't wait for you to get to know Ariel. If you want to find her on Instagram, she is at A-E-R-I-A-L-L-Y-N-N. That's Ariel Lynn. And make sure you check in with her and let her know how much you love this episode. Okay, so tell me what it was like for you finding out that your husband was gay. Well, I think it was pretty ironic for me because... Um, I was actually specializing and working with the LGBTQIA plus community um, during my internship. And, you know, it was it was such a mixed bag of emotions for me because on one hand, um, I actually my sister, who's 10 years younger than me, also had come out as gay in the last few years. So. Um, I think, you know, being a psychologist and going through all that education, I knew exactly what that looked like. And, um, you know, I had the empathy and the compassion to be able to go through it. 
However, I think that there was definitely a piece of <laughs> shock. Um, uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, Did you see any signs? You know, everyone asks me that. And I think, you know, we, we lived in Los Angeles and the only piece that I really feel like I, I could see as being a sign is, um, you know, he cared a lot about his image mm-hmm. and, but I feel like so did everyone else in Los Angeles. And so that wasn't anything that would necessarily stand out to me. Um, but you know, what, what was really ironic was, um, that all of my friends that I told almost every single one, every single one, uh, knew that wow. they were like, we're, we're not surprised. And you're like, Hey, a little <laughs> warning guys would have been real cool. Yeah, totally. So, uh, you know, I, I think that it was devastating for me in the fact that, you know, I had just moved to Colorado from California, didn't have a single person around me to support me, didn't know anyone. Um, I had just started my internship. It was, you know, just like this, the first time that I had a Monday through Friday, eight to five job and I'm dealing with this. And, and when do I have the time to cope with this? Mm -hmm. Not, not very much. And so I think I found ways to cope by the work that I was doing with the college students and that I was specializing in working with this community. And I think going into work and hearing the stories of, you know, shame around coming out. Um, you know, I, I was never angry with him. Mm. I just, I, I don't think I ever had any anger, um, for him because it went straight to compassion. Um, and also, yes, compassion for myself, you know, um, yeah, it's not an ideal situation. Um, but this is life and this is, where this chapter is taking me right now and everything happens for a reason. Um, and I hate that phrase. I know. So cliche. And, and it was helpful for me at the time that, you know, um, this is a good time for this to happen. If it were to happen, you know, did you going through that? Were you like, what am I supposed to be learning from this? Um, or why is this happening in my life right now? Oh, absolutely. I think that, you know, I moving from Los Angeles to Colorado was such a shift for me. I mean, not just Colorado, but Greeley, which is like a cow town. There's absolutely nothing. Um, But I found myself getting to know myself to a deeper extent than I had ever been able to do before. Mm -hmm. Um, I spent a lot of time alone. And it was probably the best thing that I ever could have done for myself. Um, actually, I didn't do it for myself. It was forced upon me. Yeah. But it became my favorite thing in the world um, to be alone. Mm. And I think, you know, I, I, I knew that I was always a very independent person. Um, but I think that I realized how caught up in life I became when I was in Los Angeles and to then shift, you know, spending all this time in a world that felt like image was really important. And then to go be by myself in the mountains was such a shift for me. And it became a huge lesson, um, a really helpful one. Um, And I developed self-compassion and 
um, I think, <laughs> I think in the beginning I was kind of like, who, who wants to be with a divorced 26 year old? <laughs> I was like, I'm never going to find anyone that will ever oh, want to be God. with me again. And I'm like, you know, I'm used goods and like <laughs> just a terrible, you know, the thoughts yeah, that we run of to of, of insecurity when it's like, oh shit, it's okay. This is happening. What now do I even have a future? Um, you know, and then I went into the dating world and I was like, oh, people actually are okay with this. And mm. I think there's a lot of stigma around divorce in general. And sure, my story is very different and very quite unique, but also not very unique. It actually no. happens. Um, and so, yeah, I think it was just, I think the, the biggest lesson that I learned was um, that no matter what, I'm going to be okay. Mm. And I think that was, that was, it, it was so interesting too. And, you know, sometimes I try to fi find the balance between, you know, what's real and what, what is spiritual. And, um, I think at the time it was so interesting. I, so I, when I was in LA, I became, you know, a social media influencer. I hate that name, and, <laughs> you know, whatever we want to call it. Um, but it's so interesting because the second that, that, um, separation happened, suddenly all these campaigns started coming to me and just Whoa. gave me like this immediate financial support, which, you know, that can be a, a scary piece too. And so I was, I was like, okay, this is all supposed to happen. The universe is giving me what I need right now to f at least feel that support, mm -hmm. um, in that way. And, and, you know, obviously financial is not the biggest thing, but at least something I didn't have to worry about yeah. for a little bit. And then, you know, I, I also realized how great of a support system I had. And although nobody was there for me physically, it was like, oh my gosh, I was FaceTiming and texting almost every day throughout the entire process. Um, I started seeing a therapist myself, of course. Um, and you know what? I actually found that going through that um, made me a better therapist. Oh, um, I bet. Yeah. yeah. Because, you know, it, when you're in your emotions, you can really connect with other people's emotions. Mm -hmm. Um, and I think I've been able to kind of stick with that. I always thought, you know, yeah, like I'm a decent therapist, but re like really right now I am really staying present in these sessions with these clients. Um, because I, and these emotions are so fresh for me that I can connect to the emotions that are fresh for you. Mm. So that's beautiful. And I think it's interesting too the timing of you going through this and also your sister coming forward at such a young age and saying that she's gay. Um, and the lessons that you learn from both of those people and what an impact it has on your life. What is it like watching a sibling? And you were saying you knew from a very young age that this was, you know, sort of her path. What was it like for you to watch that, but then be inspired by her? Yeah. So you know, I, I grew up in a household where um, I, I basically ended up, you know, in my opinion anyway, raising my sister. So we were 10 years apart. I basically became a mom at 10 years old. Um, you know, we have photos of her being attached to me with, what do you call it, like the baby uh, baskets or I don't know, the thing that you connect to your belly. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. The, yeah. I so, know what you're talking about. Um, yeah, I... 
I felt very close with my sister in that way and like this motherly connection with her when I was younger. And I just knew, I just knew probably around one or two years old that she wasn't just going to be, you know, your average, I guess what you would say, girl, right? Um, and I noticed that she was certainly um, pushing away those sort of um, feminine roles that um, are typically pushed upon girls when they're younger. Um, she hated the color pink. She wanted to play, you know, video games. She wanted to play with cars. Um, she hated dolls. She hated dresses. It was like, it was a fight. And, you know, I, I grew up and, you know, my dad um, was a uh, master chief in the Navy. And so there were, you know, there was a lot of strictness. There were a lot of expectations on what a girl should look like, what a girl should act like. Um, and, you know, obviously, like I'm talking more gender roles and gender identity now. Um, but I also think that, you know, there was a piece of me that felt that there was something more beyond, you know, just the fact that she didn't really like girl things, mm -hmm. right? Um, so I think I remember, you know, kind of just having this... <laughs> <laughs> my dog Dutch is underneath <laughs> us on the table and he's wagging his tail and he's hitting the metal. Come here, little nugget. Good boy. I was like, what is that? Sound? I know. Okay. As you were, um, <laughs> <laughs> he'll always keep things light. <laughs> yeah. So I, you know, I think I remember probably when she hit around puberty time, I just, it was like, none of this was going away. I think my parents had hoped that it was like, oh, this is just temporary and like, it's going to change and she's going to turn into, you know, a typical girl, like, you know, all those expectations that, um, come with being a girl. And to me, I was just like, okay, well, you're going to learn real fast that that's not happening. Mm -hmm. Um, and also, you know, my sister and I had a, a strange relationship where, yeah, I think I had more of a mom role versus a sister role. And it was really hard for me to transition mm -hmm. and get her to trust me and have those conversations with me and not see me as a mom. And so I think probably when she hit adolescence, um, I just remember calling her one day and this was, you know, I was, I was in grad school and I was like, I just have to have this conversation with her. Um, I had found out that she was struggling with her mental health really badly. And I was like, she probably wants to talk to somebody about this. Um, there were some issues happening at home and um, I wanted to be able to let her know that I was an ally. Mm. Um, so I called her and we had a conversation and I remember, um, you know, just asking her straight up and saying, you know, um, so I'm, I'm wondering like, do, uh, you know, have you been, have you had any crushes lately? Like, do you like anyone at school? And I think, you know, when you ask that question, um, there's typically like this, you know, no, I don't, you know, like this, I don't like, well, usually if basically, I, I think if you are um, trying to hide the fact that you're gay, then it's likely that you're saying no, no one at all, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I was like, you know, I'm just going to ask, and I'm going to say, well, do you like boys or do you like girls? And she was like, I think she was caught off guard. Yeah. And, and she was like, I don't know, 
you know, very close, very reserved as per usual. And I was like, okay, well, I just want you to know, like if either one, you know, it's, it's, it would be fine with me and I would be okay with it. And, um, I would, I would understand. And I remember the the whole conversation ended. It was, it was much longer than how I'm explaining it, but I just started asking different questions. And I was like, do you, you know, then I went into gender identity. It was like, you know, do you ever feel like you want to be the opposite gender? And basically at the end, she was kind of like, why are you asking this? And, um, I was like, oh, you know, um, I'm just curious. I just hope that you know that I, I know, and I've known since you were two years old. Whoa. I just got full body chills. Oh my god! I just like threw it out there. I was just like, just know that I know. I was like, I'm not going to, you know, you keep denying and which is so understandable, but you know, you don't have to say anything anymore. Just know that I know. Um, and then, you know, we kind of got off the phone and she texted me after and said, okay, but don't tell mom. (gasps) Oh (laughs) yeah. What did that feel like for you? Um, it was like this door opened, I think for her and for myself and to feel like, okay, she like, she trusts me and, um, you know, and so since then I think I've become, you know, the person that she goes to, to talk about these things and to talk about the girlfriends that she's dating. And, um, it's funny cause I, she's also, we also have this, we do have a sister relationship right now. And so she basically like calls me stupid sometimes and like teases me and I'm fine with it, you know? And I'm like, I'm 27, you're like 16. Yeah. Um, but I also appreciate that you know, so she doesn't say a lot of nice things about me or to me sometimes, which uh-huh. is, you know, the typical of teenhood. Yeah. I remember being that age. <laughs> I was an asshole. So. But she does say nice things to me every once in a while. And mm. I think the biggest thing that I, that she said to me, um, maybe last year sometime when we were talking about, you know, her difficulties with her sexuality and, and dealing with that at home, um, we had a conversation over the phone that she asked me some advice on. And then she texted me after and said, you're going to be a great mom someday. And I was like, oh, yeah, I was like, I started crying. Cause you know, to hear nice things from her is really rare, but, um, it was also just meaningful. Cause it's like, ah, oh, you know, I feel like I was a mom at some point. And then I somehow transitioned to a sister and now she sees me as, you know, somewhat of an equal, at least I think so. But, yeah. What was it like? Um, I imagine now she's come out to your parents. Yes. How was well, that? she didn't necessarily come out. I think um, to my parents, my uh, I believe it was that my parents found out oh. through going through her phone as, you know, a lot of the time that ends up happening and then you're outed when you don't want to be. Um, so I ended up t- taking on the responsibility of having that conversation with my parents Um, and I remember when I first had that conversation with my dad and so the conversation or the the relationship between my dad and my sister was unbelievably connected, like really deep father daughter relationship, so much love there, like to the point where I was like, oh man, I wish I had that when I was younger, you know, but, um, he, you know, I was like, oh, maybe it's because he's her, uh, she's his biological daughter because he's technically not my real father. Um, but anyway, I was like, okay, I'll have this conversation with him, see what I can do. 
Um, and so I remember calling him and the conversation ended up being really heartbreaking for me um, because basically he said that, well, if this is the case, if she's gay, then the relationship changes from here on out. And this is, you know, there's, there's no way that I could ever accept this. And it was so heartbreaking for me because then I was heartbroken for my sister in return. Um, but, you know, it's been a few years now and, you know, I think it's as good as it's going to get. I wouldn't necessarily say that there's a level of acceptance, more of a let's sweep it under the rug type of thing. But it's almost better than this is this is um, not OK mm-hmm. at all. And, and we can't have a relationship at all. So they have a relationship. Um but I think it's just one of those conversations that are really hard to be had. Um, and I think he's just kind of like, oh, I'm just going to have to deal with it, you know, because yeah. this is who she is. No, that's um, that's interesting. I think, you know, I like having these conversations as painful as they are sometimes to witness or hear other people talk about, you know, it's kind of like what we were saying earlier before we started recording is these things that we think are, are so rare are, are not yes. like, and it's not until you're personally experiencing something you're like, Oh shit, other people go through this stuff too. And I think that's why these conversations are important because how many families or moms listen to this or young women listen and they've either had an experience of coming out to their parents and it's been rough or they have a child and maybe they they're like you they have this intuitive feeling that their child is gay um, or maybe doesn't identify with the gender that they're in and it's like how do we have these conversations how do we support these really difficult topics and feelings and emotions in the best way possible so i guess from your experience of learning all of this in the last couple of years what's your best advice uh, for people that maybe in the in these similar situations of how to approach it and support one another so do you mean um, how do people who are experiencing, you know, these questions around their gender and sexuality, how they can approach it and like seek support? Yeah. And also how can people respond so the way you did sure. with your sister and like a really beautiful, open, simple sure. conversation with a really young woman? Yeah, yeah. You know, I think that, you know, for for those who are um, questioning their gender and um, sexuality. I think, you know, I think there is a variety of things to be considered. I think that there are also, there are obviously some cultural pieces around that. Um, and knowing the many, many backgrounds that come with it, you know, I've had, um, clients come in questioning their gender and sexuality, but also dealing with their religious backgrounds and dealing with, um, you know, their cultural backgrounds and, and the messages that are portrayed by both of those. And so I think it's a, it's a question that is, um, I think, I guess I would say it depends, right? And so um, in order to support those around you um, who might be questioning their sexuality or their gender, um, I would say that knowing that you're an ally is going to be the most helpful and in a way saying like, Hey, like if this is something that is true for you, like just know I'm here to support you. And if it's not totally cool too, you know, I think making it as casual as you can. Um, but again, that's, there are some considerations to be had depending on the situation, but in my personal experience, I've had, I've found it fairly 
helpful to, you know, treat them just like they're human. And I think that's the most beneficial thing you can do mm. not and and not have it be this thing that you're like trying to like step on eggshells and it's like hey uh, I just kind of want to have this conversation with you and it's like hey uh you know this is what it what I'm thinking you let me know your thoughts no okay cool well like just you know if you change your mind if that's something that you're um experiencing just know that I would be so supportive of you either way mm. um and I think again there are a lot of depending factors on that because some people depends on where they are on their journey too. Mm -hmm. Right. So yeah. some people might not be anywhere near ready. Some people might be totally ready and some people might have a lot of shame and some anger. And so just being mindful of what they're experiencing and, and perhaps um, approaching it accordingly. Mm. I'd love to hear, you know, shame is such like a, Hot topic right now. Sure. Thank you, Brene Brown. <laughs> but shame is such a big thing. We talk about it all the time on the show because you can have shame for so many things. Mm -hmm. When you're working with, do you call them clients or patients? Clients. Clients, okay. When you're working with your clients, um, when things like shame come up and a uh, resistance to being vulnerable, because mm -hmm. if I do this thing or if I admit this thing, it means X, Y, and Z about me. Absolutely. How do we navigate the shame piece um, and be willing to be vulnerable to a point where we can work through that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think I think there are a lot of factors that are considered in that. And I, you know, being a therapist, I always try to make sure that the client feels safe and comfortable in session. Um, and it's almost my um it's almost my, one of my goals is to get them to really feel the freedom to express their emotions in session so that we can then process it in that moment. Mm. Um, when it comes to shame, you know, I like to approach it with self-compassion, but with self-compassion comes shame, mm -hmm. right? And so then there's this back and forth of, um, we call there's this thing in self-compassion called backdraft. And it's almost like if you think about it, I don't know the exact, um, I guess, metaphorically speaking, um, if a firefighter goes into a house that's on fire, for example, and they open this door and it just explodes, right? That's kind of what happens when we tend to be kind to ourselves and loving mm. towards ourselves. There's just almost like this overwhelming feeling of like, of shame, right? Um, but it's a practice. And so, I always like to say, you know, life is a practice and right now you've been practicing shame for a really long time. Mm. And so can we practice something else? Mm. Are you willing to practice something else? And what, do, what would that look like for you? Um, and for a while you've been in the shame and, and quite the opposite of vulnerability, quite protected. Right. And how has that helped you so far? <laughs> right. And has that been helpful? And if not, why don't we try something different? Mm. Right. Um, so yeah, I think there are many different ways to approach shame. It's a, it's a hard feeling to have, but I also want to normalize it and that we all have it in yeah. so many different realms of our lives. And it's the biggest uh, barrier to us, you know, growing. And, um, if we, if we sit in the shame, right. And if we just say like, yep, everything's hopeless and there's, there's no point. Um, I'm just useless. I'm worthless. If we sit in that shame, um, 
then we get that feeling of stuckness. So I like that. I've talked about this on my last few episodes. Um, and this is something Connor and I really work on in our own relationship and with each other is we only, we only have so many experiences, especially growing up in the societal programming that we talked about. And so it's almost the way I describe it is like you live in this box and you only know what you know inside the box and inside that box is so much like shame, but it's comfortable because it's what we know, Uh even though it fucking sucks. The idea of stepping outside the box and trying something different. So scary. So scary. But what I say is like, yeah, there's a lot of scary shit out there, but that's where all of the joy and the goodness and the fulfillment and the true authentic version of you is outside of that box. Absolutely. Yeah. Why is it so overwhelmingly scary to just do one tiny thing differently? Right. Well, it's because everyone fears the unknown, right? And if you are in your comfort zone, then you know what to expect, right? But if you step out, then it's like, I can't promise that I'm going to be safe. And this could be really painful and I'm not willing to experience that pain just yet. Mm -hmm. Um, So I I try to emphasize that with clients quite a bit. um, Where I say, you know, yeah, like, There are so many emotions to be felt and there are so many experiences in life to be had. And you were, you know, you're limiting yourself by saying, you know, I'm going to stay in this box. There's so much more beyond it. And yeah, it it does require willingness to be hurt and to potentially experience pain. But again, like you said, without pain, we can't quite experience that joy Mm. or that contentment. Um, So, just, I think it's, you know, I always try to work on willingness first because without willingness, there isn't, you know, there isn't much to go from, from there if they're mm-hmm. not willing. Mm-hmm. I've talked a lot about um, safety and I didn't feel safe for so long. And I think a lot of that, I was molested as a child, sure. um, felt like emotionally abandoned in a lot of ways, sexually assaulted as an adult. Um and didn't, didn't feel safe in my body, sexually comfortable with myself. And I was always trying to control every scenario to provide myself safety. So if I control other people or I control experiences, then I can feel safe. Mm -hmm. Um, and I have a hard time. I'm not trained in the way that you are of explaining this and helping people understand what being safe actually means in their environment and within their body. How would you describe that? Yeah. So I always, you know, I I have experience working with um, sexual assault survivors and, you know, I try to emphasize that um, when we experience trauma, there's a message that we repeat over and over and over and over and over again in our heads, so much so that we convince ourselves that that's what's true, right? Mm -hmm. So whatever the situation is, um, you know, for you, for example, the message is, I am not safe, right? Mm -hmm. And so if you have that playing in your head, so I like to think of like a metaphor. Okay. So if you have a pair of glasses on, you have this lens of I'm not safe and that you're viewing the world. And can you just a little bit every day, take those glasses off, even just a tiny bit to see what's outside of that. I am not safe and see what the potential is of the world around you. Mm. And that's hard. That's so hard, especially for newly, you know, people that are newly recovering and, um, 
you know, trying to feel that empowerment, it's a, it, and it takes a long time to feel that. But it's similar to, you know, when we're children and we know what we know and we develop these thoughts and beliefs about ourselves, it's really hard to change that when you grow up. Um, it's hard to recreate your story, so to speak. Mm-hmm. Um, we're human beings. We like to know things, right? And so if we can't explain why we are the way that we are, why things are happening for us, we fill in the blanks with whatever we can. Mm. And a lot of the time, unfortunately, those fill in the blanks are negative things. So, oh, like, you know, for example, when I, um, I didn't know much about my biological father when I was a child. It was like, oh, he didn't want anything to do with me, so I must be worthless. Mm. So nobody wants anything to do with me, right? And that's so common. We create these fill-in-the-blanks of like, I don't know the answers to this, and so why don't I figure it out? And and it's so interesting. Why can't we fill it in the blank with like, you know what? You know, if, if I was a, a child or teenager, why couldn't I have instead said, you know what? He wasn't good for me anyway. You yeah. know, and like, it's because I have this other life that's meant for me. And we don't really have, we're not taught to think in that way because we live in this world of, you know, what we know most of the time is self-criticism. Mm. And so in order to change that around, we have to approach self-compassion, but self-compassion is so scary for some people because sometimes there's a stigma around it too, where it's like, oh, then you're a narcissist. And it's like, no, that's not, that's not what self-compassion is. Compassion for others is this ability to connect with them and say, you know, this is part of the human experience. This pain, this suffering is part of life. And can you say the same to yourself? And a lot of the time when we experience pain and suffering, we then go to, oh, it's my fault, Mm. right? And like, oh, it's because I'm this way. And it's not helpful. And so we have to create new habits to... Um, to where if, you know, if, if you were experiencing someone or if you were experiencing something that was painful and you thought about someone that you loved, um, the most in this world, and if they were experiencing the same thing, what would you say to them? Mm. And how would it be different from what you were saying to yourself? Why do we default to that self-criticism? Well, because we, we, we've grown up in an environment where, where we think that, okay, well, um, if we let go of self-criticism, then we'll become lazy. You know, we won't get enough, we won't have enough motivation to get done the things that we need to get done. Mm. It's kind of like in sports. If you think about it, it's like, do more, do more, do better. That's not good enough. you got to get your head in the game. And we think that by do, saying those things, it's like we're, we're using fear. Mm. Like, oh shoot, if I, if I let my guard down, I'm going to fall apart. Mm-hmm. Whereas can you approach yourself instead with, I love you and can, and, and research shows that self-compassion is so much more effective than self-criticism, but we go to self-criticism so much more. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's because, and you know, it's nobody's fault. It's just how we were raised. It's how society thinks is, it's how society thinks is the best solution, right? Of we got to do better. We got to look for the next thing. And it's like, can you just be where you are? Mm. Right. You said your dad was in the Navy, right? Yeah. What is it like for you when it comes to self-criticism to be raised by someone who is in many ways militant and very strict and your belief system that was created around that and then having a mom who's Filipino and that cultural dynamic as well? Yes. Yeah. You know, again, I, you know, I, I stress the importance of how you're raised, um, and what you're taught, that's all you know, 
right? And so growing up with a dad who was very authoritarian, which is my way or the highway, you're not doing good enough, do better, perfectionism. Mm. Um, and then my mom being the total opposite, you know, being Filipino, she was very passive and kind of, you know, there's a white man and, and a woman of color and there are some cultural pieces there. And so it was very tricky for me to navigate. And the things that were taught to me were women should be quiet and listen to what men have to say. Mm. And I realized very soon that I, I hated that. I hated it so much. And I was like, oh, I just, I never want to be quiet. I never, and I grew up very shy, very quiet, very reserved. And I, but because of those messages, I ended up being in situations that sucked, you know? Like I put myself in situations where like my best friend was my biggest bully, you mm. know? And I never stood up to her because there was the passive side, right? And then there was the bullying side that came from my dad, which was like, this is comfortable for me. I, you know, my best friend is both a bully and I get to practice this passiveness, wow. what I see in my household. Um, so those messages that we receive as a child are really hard to remove ourselves from. Luckily I went to grad school and learned all about these yeah. things. <laughs> and, you know, I saw, I've seen therapists along the way. Um, but going back to your question, which I think I've forgotten what the question is and now I've just ranted. <laughs> no, just about how, what that like frame of mind for you has been based on being raised by those two types of people yeah. and what that's done, um, to who you are now. Yeah. yeah. Um, yeah, I think that, um, I've been able to create my own self. Mm. Um, it was, it was a lot of work, mm -hmm. uh, absolutely a lot of work, but you know, I grew up thinking, and the reason why I became a psychologist was because I grew up thinking that I, I had no future, right? Um, it's, it's either you be quiet and you don't stand up for yourself, um, or you experience that you know, this sort of, um, you're never good enough message. And so I was like, God, well, that sucks. Either I, you know, it, both of my, in both, in two different worlds, I'm either not good enough or I'll, I could be good enough if I just stay quiet. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but I actually ended up seeing a psychologist for the first time when I was about 16, which shifted everything for me because it was the first time, um, that someone had told me that I was good enough. And that, that really set the tone for the rest of my life. And, you know, I, I think, again, being in a, in a household which was very authoritarian, very military-like, um, it was that nothing I could ever do is good enough. And these are the rules, and this is exactly how everything should go, and you shouldn't step out of those rules. Um, and so my, the expectations I think on, on, in my family were, you know, you stay home and, and take care of the family, cook, clean all the time. And I did, and I raised my sister and I didn't think that there was anything for me out there beyond that. Um, and that psychologist told me for, for the first time, I remember the specific um, experience. It was so powerful for me. Um, so he knew my brother, who's two years older than me, who was dealing with a lot of mental health issues. Um, but my brother was like getting straight Fs, just failing classes, moving from school to school. And so the psychologist actually already knew my family mm -hmm. to the T. 
but he never knew about the sister, which was me. And he was like, oh, here you are. Here's the sister. And tell me what's going on. Like, oh, you're struggling. And he was like, uh, let me look at your grades. And he looked at my grades and he was like, he, I just remember exactly how it happened. He took off his glasses and he was like, Ariel, he was like, are you telling me that you are in this household that I know very well and these are your grades? He's like, how have you done it? And I was like, oh, I don't, I don't know. I just, I just do it. And I realized that my education was in my way of escape, right? Like, okay, all this chaos is happening in my household. I'm going to run to my room and I have all this homework I have to do, right? Mm -hmm. To avoid being around the chaos. So it was helpful, but also I didn't know what I was doing with it. I didn't, I didn't even think about college at that time. Um, Cause you know, I was just like, well, I'm just going to stay here and take care of my family. Um, and he told me that I had a future and um, that college was a possibility. And he was like, you got to get out of there. You got to get out of there as soon as you can. Um, and I'm going to be here to support you until that happens. Wow. And yeah. So applied to college, went to college, went to grad school. And so I just went nonstop and <laughs> 26 year old. 26 years old, I finally finished like eight years of, of school. Um, and you know, I, uh, so I'm like finally in this place. And then after all that, then I was going through a divorce. Yeah. But then, you know, <laughs> okay. Like, universe. Thanks. <laughs> I'm like, Oh, now, so now I just feel like I can breathe. Mm. And with that also comes a lot of other stuff, right? Yeah. So we're not perfect and nothing's ever perfect for us. Mm -hmm. And you know, I recognize that I'm human and when things start to slow down, it's when um, you realize there's just been all this stuff and I'm grateful for all of it, mm. to be honest. Um, no matter what my past has given to me, um, I think that some people can take it different ways, right? And I hope that I can teach and really educate others who have traumatic pasts that your past does not have to identify you. And can we instead use a sense of empowerment to give yourself the best life? Because you don't deserve to have to sit in all the shit that people have given to you, mm. right? So I think that's, yeah. Anyway, I, I became a psychologist because I wanted to help others in the way that I had been helped um, and to empower others. And that's why I love working with college students. Mm. Um, I think recently um, I had to terminate with a client at a, at a college and they said to me that the best thing I'd given them was this desire to stay alive. And that I was like, that's all I need to hear that. I just remember tearing up and being like, Oh my God, like I am exactly where I want to be. Mm -hmm. And I'm impacting others in exactly the way that I wanted um, and I'm not perfect and I'm not a perfect therapist either, but to at least have those few moments, if I can at least get people to want to stay alive, um, and to see that they have a future the way that I was given, that's, it's worth all of the grad school debt to me. <laughs> totally. Well, I think I love, oh, I love all of that. Thank you for sharing. So, um, honestly and deeply, all of that seriously is, of course. I got the chills like every couple seconds. I was like, oh my God. I knew well, I loved this woman, we, but now can, I love how you. can we expect others to be vulnerable? If yeah. We're not vulnerable ourselves. Exactly. Well, and that's, that's what I was going to get to next is like, I love this idea 
of giving people, people permission to see what else is available to them and step outside that box Mm -hmm. permission or support in just wanting to be alive permission to try something different permission like that therapist did for you at such a young age and saying, there's more for you out there. Like you have more to offer. And if you don't hear that, especially as a young child, how do you know what else is available to you? Like it's so hard. And I think that my message, and I feel like yours too, is just the words of encouragement to share with other people when you see them in this place and letting them know that there's more out there and that it might be uncomfortable and it might be scary, but taking those simple steps and seeing like there's a whole world available to you and you deserve that. Absolutely. And I think that that's the message that got me through the entire situation with my divorce, honestly, was because, you know, if, if it turns out that he's gay, like there is a whole other world beyond what he thought was what he was supposed to do, mm. marry a woman and have children. And, you know, he, he is now living a completely different life. And it's honestly, yeah, it, there's a part of it that's like, gosh, you know, I didn't know. I had no idea. And sometimes you just don't know. Mm -hmm. And at the same time, this is good for him. Um, He's a different person. And, you know, it's, it's almost, it's a grieving process of like the person that I was married to is no longer, he he doesn't exist anymore. Mm -hmm. And, but with that is this creation of a whole new person um, who appears to be much more content and, much more accepting. Mm. And, you know, I, I think he, there was, you know, some, some anxiety and frustration that he was experiencing throughout our marriage and, you know, to kind of know where the root of it was coming from. And it's like, God, well now everything makes sense, you know? And I think to know that there was a whole world for him out there and he had the courage to accept that that was the world that he wanted and the world that he had created for him so far wasn't wasn't enough for him. And I think it takes a lot for people to be able to do that. Mm -hmm. Um, I think that it's so courageous of my sister, you know, to accept that she's gay at such a young age um, and to take hold of that identity and really um, say that this is who I am and I don't really care what you think. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I, I think it's, I think it's just so empowering to see and, um, and it's like, you know what, I'm fine. And, um, there, my world is out there, you know, and, and it's happening and, um, it, and it's so important to look back and know that we're a lot of the time, like, I, I think I'm very futuristic. I'm like, what's the next step? I gotta, you know, figure out how to get a house someday and like, you know, and all <laughs> these things, but also to just take a, take a step back and to just be where I am because this is exactly where I've wanted to be for a long time. And can I just be okay with that for now? Mm. And I think there's so much, so so something that I I want to stress the importance of is there is a lot of talk about this word healing, right? And I think it's a wonderful word. And I think that um, at the same time, some people get can get caught up in this word healing of like, okay, I have to do this, this, and that. I have to go to therapy. I have to go to yoga. I've got to get my crystals. got to get, you know, like my food and all the healing and, and talk to my friends. And, but by doing that, we're almost searching 
for like a shift in where we actually are. Mm -hmm. It's like, I want to heal so that I can no longer be where I am right now. Right. Whereas like, I want the word to now be hold, like, can you hold space for where you are? And in that respect, like if you can hold where you are, then in return, the healing happens. Right. So like holding versus healing, like, can you hold yourself and just be where you are? And if that means today you want to go to yoga, go to yoga. If that means you want to do whatever it is that you do for self-care, do it. But don't do these things as a way of hoping to escape from where you are and hoping to change where you are, but instead as a way to complement who you are today in this moment right now. Ooh, girl, let me mic drop right now. Damn, that's good. You just like shifted my whole perspective because you know what? My, oh, that's so good. I love when this happens. I am such a go-getter and like, let me achieve this thing. I feel like I have been looking at healing without even realizing it. Sorry, I don't know why I'm crying. No, it's amazing. As needing to achieve something. You're going to make me cry. It's not about achieving and healing. It's about holding space for where you are in every version of who you are and allowing what's meant to come forward and work through you in that time. Yeah. Oh my God, that is so good. <laughs> you Have you said that out loud before? No, I have not. You and so beautifully <laughs> articulated that. I was like, oh my um, God. <laughs> thank you. And I think I'm crying because I think before we started this, I was like, I'm not good at this. I can't, I don't know how to talk. I don't like podcasts and interviews. Like I can't do those. Like I've had, you know, and I've been really anxious this whole time. And here's just me being totally open and vulnerable of like, what the hell am I saying? Am I even making any sense? And I feel like what I just said made sense. And that was so cool. much. Dude, that was profound. That was like really, really beautiful. Oh, thank you for saying that. <laughs> I can't wait to re-listen to this over and over and hear that piece. Um, wow. Shifting just a little bit from that, I want to go back to your work. Um, my first question before we get into my actual question, LGBTQIA. Yes. So um, IA missed that Plus, the memo yeah. that that was a thing now. So sure. can you explain to me the IA now yeah. and, and plus and what that means so that people can be educated around that? Absolutely. So we're just, we're basically coming across this idea that sexuality and gender identity is non-binary. So binary means there's just one or the other, like you choose one category or the other category, but non-binary means there's this entire spectrum of how you can identify because not everyone's experience is the same. So yeah, so they've, they've added the I and the A at the end, which stand for intersex and asexuality. And then the plus, just because, you know, there's so much more beyond that. Just because why not? Yeah. We got all the possibilities. Yeah. There's so much to, mm -hmm. that. it's basically this idea that we don't, there, you don't have to be in a box. You don't have to identify with this one that category. And sometimes, and what I've found to be really cool, honestly, and the clients that I've worked with in the past in that community is their idea that, you know, like, I don't, you know, if you want to call me this, then call me this, but I don't really care to identify in a certain category. Like I'm just, I'm just who I am. I'm a human being. And maybe I like girls sometimes. Maybe I like guys sometimes. Maybe I like to dress like a guy sometimes. Maybe I like to dress like a girl sometimes. And like, I don't have to label that. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there, there are different 
words and phrases that are coming out. And at the same time, I think some people are actually much more comfortable not identifying with any of those. Mm -hmm. And that's also okay. Well, we've been taught everything has to be labeled and fit into a box. And if it doesn't, it's wrong or it has no place. And it's like, but there doesn't need to be a label or a box for anything. You can just be, Mm -hmm. and whatever you feel, you honor that and allow it. Yeah. I'm so over labels. I wanted to ask you, um, so I was having coffee with this woman the other day and she's bisexual and she's married to a man and she, uh, came, came out to him. If you're bisexual, do you come out? Um, I mean, you can, Yeah. but again, that's up to you. Right. That's your, that's your story, your journey, your experience. You can, or you can't, right? Or, and, and I don't know that necessarily it's about not coming out. Like if you feel like that's something that you want to keep to yourself, that's not because of shame, mm-hmm. then, you know, I think that that's okay. But I think you can come out. Yeah. Um, and I think that it, it would actually be more empowering to come out because I think that we realize that um, there is, again, a lot, there are a lot more individuals who are, um, identifying in the ways that they want to identify. And it's not the binary expectation, um, that we tend to live with. And so, um, I think that that's that person's choice. Mm -hmm. So she comes out to her husband, um, then boyfriend at the time and says, I'm bisexual. This is the deal. And here's Dutch again in a very (laughs) serious conversation. Um, and he's, kind of freaked out because he's never been with a bisexual woman before and doesn't really know what to do with it. And then they start having different experiences. And she was telling me that they were having sex with another couple and he was realizing that he actually wanted to wear women's panties and didn't know that before. And so in her coming out and her like curating these experiences of, you know, different nature and curiosity it opened up this whole world for him to realize like, Oh, I actually kind of like to do this thing and it feels really good. And so there's that piece, but there's also this idea that she and I were talking about that so many women are coming out now about being bisexual and being interested in women. Not necessarily that I want to be in a relationship with a woman, but that I want to feel pleasure with a woman that I want to be in that energy, um, and not keep myself in this, uh, very cut and dry black or white. I am Mm -hmm. only interested in men. And I'm just wondering, uh, and I guess there's two questions there. When you open up sexually, the permission it gives to your partner or people in your life to explore their own sexuality that they haven't before. And also this idea that so many women, I think, especially our age are opening up to the idea. It doesn't have to be this one way that we were taught. Right. Right. What is about that? Why is that happening? Well, I think that we are starting to see, um, people like ourselves uh, coming out. And what that means is, you know, it's, we're starting to fight back and we're starting to, again, uh, remove ourselves from that silence of like, we're supposed to be this way. Right. Um, but we're starting to notice that we're, we're watching others be courageous and perhaps, you know, if it turns out okay for them, it can turn out okay for us too. Mm. But also recognizing that, you know, 
nothing in this society is perfect right now. So it still continues to come with tons of stigma and shame and all of those pieces that make it hard for, you know, people in the LGBTQIA plus community to be fully be themselves and to fully be out. Um, you know, not, not everyone is open to that. Not everyone is welcoming to that. And so knowing that if you were to come out and it's not fully, fully welcome and that there are possibilities of, you know, discrimination and um, hate crimes and all of those things, like that's again, like, oh, well, I could not be safe. Mm. But then it's like, well, you know, will I limit, will I continue to limit myself and my life for the sake of safety in that way? Or can I at least live my life in a way that feels the most authentic and genuine to me? Mm. And which of those would I rather go towards? Mm -hmm. I was having an interesting conversation with my girlfriend, Julia, and she's, um, she was actually on Connor's podcast and came out publicly about being bisexual. Um, and we were talking and we both said like, the porn that we've watched in our lives has been lesbian porn or uh, all girls. Yet we never thought to think like, what does that mean? Am I curious about that? Do I think other women are attractive? What does that mean about me? It was kind of like, well, I watched this thing and that's what arouses me and gets me sure. excited. But what does that mean? And I think there's a lot of confusion for people in what arouses you, what turns you on sure. versus what you want to do in your real life or what you like. Um, when people come to you and, and maybe there's this confusion, how do you explain desire and arousal and what that means about your frame of reference for your own sexuality. Sure. Well, I kind of just allow, you know, when clients are talking about what, you know, especially when they're like, I don't even know if, if I am gay or if like I'm into girls or boys or what the situation is. I just give them an open floor and I say, what do you think of and what do you feel when you picture this? Or what do you think of and what do you feel when you look at that? And, um, you know, experiences from childhood until now and what has that looked like and here here's the thing again it doesn't even have to be a label but just to know what you enjoy and what you don't enjoy mm -hmm. right and that's okay mm -hmm. it doesn't have to be like you know I think that someone could like a female could enjoy another female's sexuality um, together and it doesn't even necessarily have to mean that you know, she's gay or bisexual. It can just mean, you know, in this moment right now, this is what I enjoy. Mm -hmm. and that's okay. And, and you can identify that with that, with that, if that's what you're comfortable with and if that's what feels true to you. Yeah. I like that a lot. That feels good because it's really honoring what your body is feeling mm -hmm. and taking your mind and your ego out of that space. Um, and I the love labels that. of society. Yeah. Yeah. Like these constructs we feel like we have to fit into. Um, I want to know how you view spirituality and how you infuse that into your practice. Sure. So as far as spirituality goes, you know, I, I recognize, you know, that um, everyone's level of spirituality is different. So um, I try to engage spirituality and religiosity with my clients and kind of have that discussion on what, what their belief system looks like. And um, if they if they seem open to having those discussions around spirituality, then definitely I incorporate it. Um, but I try to be respectful, um, you know, to what their beliefs are and how they view the world. Right. And so I, I, I 
and I guess like as far as spirituality goes, I take a, um, there, there's a, a bit of like a Buddhist theory in psychology and the way that I approach, I guess, spirituality in, um, therapy is I practice what's known as acceptance and commitment therapy. And, and it's about radical acceptance of like, this is what it is. And then I incorporate self-compassion in which human suffering is part of uh, the experience of living, right? And so those are some pieces that I bring in to, to pretty much everyone that you are not alone in your experiences. And can we be with, can we hold, right, what you're experiencing um, in that way? So I think that that's probably how I incorporate it. I love that. When you, in a daily in your daily life, in your daily practice, do you incorporate things like meditation and journaling and, and things like that? Sure. Yeah. You know, I, I do incorporate meditation and mindfulness. Um, and you know, and I'm going to be completely honest about this. Um, I think there's a lot of talk about manifesting and journaling. And I think that something that I need to work on is the fact that um, I have this Instagram post actually, and I saw it the other day where I sat and I wrote down and I manifested my entire future. And this was, you know, in grad school. And I was like, in a few years, like I'm, you know, this is what my life is going to look like and I'm manifesting it and it's happening. And I was, I mean, and I basically was, um, predicting last year, Wow, which looked so different from what I was hoping, obviously. Mm. I wasn't predicting my journal that I would, you know, be going through a divorce, moving to another state for all that matter. I predicted that I was still in LA because I thought that that's where I wanted to be. And I thought that that marriage was where I wanted to be. And yet the universe gave me what I actually needed, not what I thought that I needed. And so I'm a bit, um, as far as it comes to like manifesting the future, I'm kind of taking a step back on that because I'm saying, you know what? Yeah, there are some things that I might want, but that could change so dramatically. And, you know, I, maybe I want these things now, but who's to say that that will change in a few years. And can I be okay with what the universe does give me? What does happen in my life? I, you know, I could, you know, I can say, I can try and manifest that I, you know, have a house in three years or something along those lines. And can I be with the fact that, you know, in three years, if I don't have a, a house, can I just be okay with that? Yeah. It doesn't mean you failed or did something wrong. Right. Yeah. I think, um, we do get caught up in spirituality sometimes with things like that. It's like manifesting equals control for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. It's like, well, if I can create this path and this idea and vision right. and then do all the things to make it happen, then I'm in control and, <laughs> right. and I made it happen. And it's right. like, and then yeah. when it doesn't, it's devastating. Right. And you're like, Oh, I'm a failure. Like I did this wrong. Like I needed this other crystal to make <laughs> it happen to like channel the universe. And it's like, no, it's, and this is something I'm still working on. So I'm no expert by any means, but it's, it's allowing, it is allowing. And like you said, holding for where you are right now and asking yourself, what do I need in this moment? Because what you need in this moment and honoring that is what allows for things to happen in your life the way they're meant to. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, it's a lot of the time when we don't get what we hoped for, or we don't get what we thought we were working so hard for. It's sort of like, why is the world punishing me? Like, why am I not getting what I wanted. Like, why is this not working out for me versus can we approach it in a way that's like, 
what is the lesson to be learned here? Yes. What can I learn from this? I love that so much. And again, instead of heal, can I like hold this and just be okay with it? Mm. Thank you so much. This was so magical. <laughs> and I was like, she's going to be so much better than she thinks she is. And you totally were. You're so natural at this. And you have you have such a beautiful energy. And I just, I love the way you show up for people. And I'm so glad that we get to be friends now. Yay. Yay for Instagram for stalking. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Ariel. Thank you all so much for listening to The Kelly Show. If you haven't yet subscribed, be sure to do so now and head to ratethispodcast.com slash Kelly to leave a five-star review. And as a bonus for doing that, if you send me a screenshot of your review before you submit, I will get you a little thank you gift in the mail. All right, we have another juicy episode coming for you next week, so stay tuned. And as always, if I can support you in any way, please reach out. Remember, I'm just a DM or an email away. See you guys soon.